It's Pentecost Wednesday. It's an ember day today, and in the newer post-conciliar calendar, it is neither of those things. Instead, in the Novus Ordo calendar, it's the Feast of St. Matthias, Apostle. And in the older, traditional calendar, it's also the commemoration of St. Boniface. And this is Father Z with another podcast. Today we welcome as our guest St. John Chrysostom, who died in 407. He speaks to us across the centuries about the choice of St. Matthias to fill the place left empty by the death of Judas in the College of the Apostles. Also, we're going to find out more about Ember Days, this beautiful Catholic custom which the post-conciliar reform repressed. Now, it just may happen that some of you who are younger or who are converts have never heard of Ember Days, and you might be wondering what this is all about. Now, once upon a time in the history of the Church, these Ember Days were quite important, and as a result, it strikes me as very odd, uh, even uh, so far as to say unwise, that they were eliminated in the post-conciliar reforms of the liturgy and the calendar. But... So many things were eliminated or shifted or tinkered with, weren't they? Including the octave of Pentecost, which we are observing uh, in a special way in this series of Pentecost podcasts. So what is an ember day? Well, first of all, what about that word, ember? Now, usually when you hear the word ember in English, you think of a hot coal in a fireplace or a hearth. But the word ember here comes from... Anglo-Saxon, Ibren, meaning to go around in a circle, like to make a circuit. And so it's it has to do with the seasons. Now there are some other explanations as well. For example, there's a uh, one explanation that says ember is a corruption of the Latin title for these days, the, the quatuor tempora, or the four seasons, the four times. Uh, apparently that was mispronounced according to this theory and came to be quatember and then the T dropped off uh, from tember and it became ember I don't buy that but it's possible that sometimes words did develop that way but in a nutshell ember days are the Wednesday, Friday and Saturday following the first Sunday in Lent uh, the ancient 
Ordo Romanus, a kind of calendar, assigned the beginning of spring to the first week of March. So that's why it's about that time. It roughly corresponds to the first part of Lent. And another one was on Whitsun. I explained that in another podcast, the name Whitsun, White Sunday, because of the baptismal garments, because Pentecost was a time of baptism. And so another one was around Pentecost. In other words, today, the one we're dealing with today. Another one followed Holy Cross Day, sometimes called Holy Rood Day. Rood being another word for the cross. That's R-O-O-D. Sometimes you may have heard of a rood screen in churches. That is, of course, on the 14th of September, so it's in the autumn. And another was on uh, around St. Lucy's Day, which is celebrated on the 13th of December. It's the last complete week before the solstice and before Christmas, and thus it falls during Advent. And so these are at the times of the changes of the four seasons, you see. So we celebrated the Ember Days on Wednesday and Friday and Saturdays. Now these were fasting days in the ancient church, and so the Ember Days remain penitential in spirit. They were specifically times of fast. Pope Leo the Great, who died in 461, called these days the Yeunia Quatuor Temporum, the fasts of the four times of the four seasons. And so the series of ember days, they all fall at the times of the changing of the four seasons. And to help people remember when they were, there was a little mnemonic poem in very clunky Latin and also very clunky English. And here it is. Dant crux lucia cineres charismata dia ut sit in Angaria quarta sequens feria. Yeah, I know, the Latin isn't very good, but it was designed in, to, to help you remember. The English is, Fasting days and embrings be, Lent, Whitsun, Holy Rood, and Lucy. So that reflects the different days. So in Latin, as I mentioned before, Pope Leo the Great, already in the 5th century, he's calling these the Iunia Quator Temporum, the fast of the four seasons. So Holy Church on these days would pray that God would bless the special activities of those seasons. Because, of course, in centuries past, people's lives depended on them. For example, they depended on good weather so that they could plant crops and have them grow and then harvest them and not freeze to death in winter. And they would see the light of the sun grow stronger again. Remember Lucy, Lucy, that word, the Saint Lucy, it has to do with light. And it's very close to the time of the change of the circuit of the earth around the sun so that our days beget, began to get longer again. And so these special days, especially the Saturdays, were also designated for ordinations. See, they were a time of great blessing for the church, God's blessings being conferred upon us. In their origin, these ember days are probably inspired as a Christian response or a continuation, in a sense, of the pagan festivals at the change of the seasons. Now, we have to remember that ancient Romans were very agrarian in their rural view. Their culture and their gods and their festivals and so forth were very much agricultural gods and connected to the seasons. So 
many of their customs uh, of their contractual worship with the gods came from that agricultural era that whole issue of contractual worship i think we have to understand that let's pause and digress about that for just a moment the ancient roman religion was very much characterized by a phrase do ut des which means i give or i do this so that you will give or do that in other words i'm going to uh, complete my part of the bargain, but then you have to, you, whatever God I'm praying to, you have to do your part. Do ut des. I give that you may give, or that you will give as a result. The Romans perceive their relationship to the gods as a contract. As long as we hold up our part, then you, O oh gods, have to hold up your part. And so their worship, or their ritual, was very much uh, inspired by. Uh, rigidity of a juridical or a contractual relationship so long as they went through the ritual properly they did the right things and they said the right words and the gods were bound to do their part which meant that if there was any mistake in a ritual either in the words or the actions they had to go back and actually start again and do it over until they got it right now uh, this was very important for christians later on because with this contractual relationship between the Roman people, and that means the state and the gods, anyone who would not support the state religion, the contractual religion with the gods, in order to maintain the Pax Deorum, the peace with the gods, was seen not just as being impious or irreligious or some kind of weird heretic, they were seen as being traitors. They were committing an act of treason. They were harming the state because they were breaking down the contractual relationship with the gods. So uh, one of the reasons why these festivals were so important, uh, agrarian festivals and so forth, were important were because of the rituals that had to be carried out in the contractual relationship with the gods. Now I've digressed a little bit here, but I wanted to flesh out that that mentality of of ancient roman religion but uh, in the ancient romans they had their they had their ferie sementive in december and they were about planting and the ferie missis in june for a good harvest and their ferie vindemiales for a good wine vintage in september very important one that one and so they had those three specific times eventually in christian times there would be a fourth one added but we know from ancient liturgical collections such as the liber pontificalis the pontifical book which uh, governed the rituals and the prayers pronounced by the roman pontiff some of its roots go back as far as pope callistus in the third century uh, we know that there were times, these times of fast, that were indicated during the year. Uh, already in the 5th century, uh, by the time of Pope Gelasius, they're speaking of four fasting times. So obviously one was added in there somewhere. And this very Roman practice eventually spread to other places. For example, St. Augustine of Canterbury brought them to England. And in the Roman liturgy, the masses uh, for the ember days are a little different. 
even in the 1962 missile, you can see how they're different from normal days. They reflect a more ancient practice and uh, the extra attention given to these changes of seasons. But, uh, of course, you know, there would be some variation in different places uh, about the celebration of these ember days, and it all was subjected to later regulation by different... For example, I think it was Pope Urban II in the, in the 11th century, perhaps, who regulated the times of these fast times in the ember days. So along the course of history, the dates were adjusted here and there, but the pattern remains pretty much the same. Now, I've mentioned several times that these are the fast times. This is the Yeunia Quatuor Temporum. Now, people were expected to do some fasting on these days. For example, Catholics were to have only one full meal in a day on Ember Days. And, of course, on Ember Friday, they couldn't have meat either. So it was rather like the modern legislation for Ash Wednesday. Now, Mass, uh, of course, as I mentioned before, was also a little different. For example, there were additional readings. There were three on Wednesdays and six on Saturdays. And in the, for the Amber Saturday in December, there were seven readings. And in these readings, you would hear something about the season, or the importance of the season, what they were asking God to bless them with. Now, to be fair... There is still kind of a trace of ember days, sort of, in the modern Roman calendar, but it's not really fixed down in the way that it used to. It's all very vague and squishy. My understanding is, and I bet one of you listeners or readers of the blog, that's wdtprs.com, whiskey, delta, tango, papa, romeo, sierra.com, come and visit. Uh, probably some of you out there could fill this out for me a little bit more thoroughly, but my understanding is, is that regional conferences of bishops can assign certain days of prayer for peace. So if that reflects ember days or the old rogation days, I'm not quite sure what that is all about, but it seems to me rather thin gruel compared to the rich fare of the fasting of the four seasons in the ember days that uh, we have a this wonderful custom but it just, just eliminated in the new way of seeing the calendar just astonishing to me so effectively these ember days go back to the very roots of the church of rome as roman catholics we should want to know these things they were incorporated into the life rhythm of Catholics through the whole world. In other words, all of society, all Western civilization were shaped in part by these things because people knew they had to sanctify the different times of year. They had to. They wanted to bring God's blessings on the needs of the people, the, the critical needs without which they could not live. They would starve to death or freeze to death. Or they wouldn't have the, the, the needs of life. And also, because of the fasting dimension, these days also helped people understand how to use the gifts of God's creation with moderation. Maybe modern-day environmentalists would like to take up the cause of reintroducing ember days back into the calendar. So the old calendar has so many beautiful points of reference. For example, uh, there are days when there were special blessings. 
People could regulate their lives by the church's calendar and know exactly when to plant crops, when to get ready to do this or that. I love some of these old blessings. For example, in June, on the Feast of St. John the Baptist, there's a special blessing for bonfires. Well, I'm sure probably that at, by that point, all the trimmings from the orchards and the vineyards were dry and they needed to be gotten rid of. So they would have the priest come and they would bless bonfires and they would probably have a, a feast with all of the good things that were coming from the first fruits of the June harvest. Remember, there was the, the Ferie Messis, in ancient times, and these are continued in, even into more modern centuries. Uh, at Epiphany, you know about the blessing of chalk for the, for the special house blessing, but there was also a blessing for apple trees. And on the Feast of the Nativity of Mary, there was a special blessing for seeds that were going to be planted. And there was a blessing for lilies on the Feast of St. Anthony of Padua and all sorts of different things. In Rome, for example, you know that the strawberries are at their height around the Feast of St. Philip Neri, the 26th of May, which is my anniversary of ordination, by the way. And you knew that when St. Boniface Day came, which is today, you knew the winter was over. That's kind of how they thought of things. The weather had changed, and they were beginning to feel the warmth of of the summer, of the coming summer. So much of this connection of our lives with the calendar has been lost, and that's probably partly because our mentality has been changed about them because of electricity and modern technology. Maybe that was partly the reasoning, or maybe the worldview of the experts who cut and snipped our new calendar for the Novus Ordo together. But the fact remains is that these experts who redid all these things at the behest of the Concilium, uh, not the Concilium, which is the Second Vatican Council, but the Concilium, which went way beyond the mandate that the Council gave it, they thought their notions of how the calendar ought to be outweighed the experience of countless generations going back to the very roots, the very origins of the Roman Church. Now today is the feast of St. Matthias the Apostle, and you know the story from the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles knew that the College of Apostles was a sacred thing. Christ himself had chosen the men, and they had chosen the, no, he had chosen the number 12. And so with that awareness, they knew that they had to make the decision, I'm guessing probably at the instigation of the Lord himself before his ascension, he probably told them what they better do before the uh, the descent of the Holy Spirit. 
So just before the great Pentecost event and the descent of the Holy Spirit, the apostles chose St. Matthias from the different candidates available to them. And so let's hear today a reading from today's Office of Readings in the post-conciliar Liturgy of the Hours, the Liturgia Orarum, for this Feast of St. Matthias. It's from St. John Chrysostom. Now, I don't happen to have the Greek text handy for this, I'm afraid, so I can't read you the Greek today. So we just get English. But listen carefully to how the great Bishop of Constantinople, this fiery preacher, gives such authority to St. Peter. In those days Peter, rising up in the midst of the brethren, said, Now the number of persons together was about a hundred and twenty. Men, brethren, the scripture must needs be fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was the leader of them that apprehended Jesus, who was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. And he indeed hath possessed a field of the reward of iniquity, and being hanged, burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the same field was called in their tongue, Haseldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, Let their habitation become desolate, and let there be none to dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men who have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus came in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day wherein he was taken up from us, one of these must be made a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Eustus, and Matthias. And praying, they said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. To take the place of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas hath by transgression fallen, that he might go to his own place. And they gave them lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Chrysostom continues, As the fiery spirit to whom the flock was entrusted by Christ, and as the leader in the band of the apostles, Peter always took the initiative in speaking. My brothers, we must choose from among our number. He left the decision to the whole body, at once augmenting the honor of those elected and avoiding any suspicion of partiality, for such great occasions can easily lead to trouble. Did not Peter then have the right to make the choice himself? Certainly he had the right, but he did not want to give the appearance of showing special favor to anyone. Besides, he was not yet endowed with the Spirit. 
and they nominated two, we read, Joseph, who was called Bersabbas, and surnamed Justus, and Matthias. He himself did not nominate them, all present did. But it was he who brought the issue forward, pointing out that it was not his own idea, but had been suggested to him by a scriptural prophecy. So he was speaking not as a teacher, but as an interpreter. So, he goes on, we must choose from those men who lived in our company. Notice how insistent he is that they should be eyewitnesses. Even though the Spirit would come to ratify the choice, Peter regards this prior qualification as most important. Those who lived in our company, to continue the passage all through the time when the Lord Jesus came and went among us. He refers to those who had dwelt with Jesus, not just those who had been his disciples. For, of course, from the very beginning, many had followed him. Notice how it is written that Peter himself was one of the two who had listened to John and followed Jesus. All through the time when the Lord came and went among us, to continue further, beginning with the baptism of John. Rightly so, because no one knew what had happened before that time although they were to know of it later through the Spirit. Up to the day, Peter added, on which he was taken up from us, one of these must be made a witness all along with us of his resurrection. He did not say a witness of the rest of his actions, but only a witness of the resurrection. That witness would be more believable who could declare that he who ate and drank and was crucified also rose from the dead. He needed to be a witness, not of the times before or after event, and not of the signs and wonders, but only of the resurrection itself. For the rest happened by general admission, openly, but the resurrection took place secretly and was known to these men only. And they all prayed together, saying, You, Lord, know the hearts of men. Make your choice known to us. You, not we. Appropriately, they said that he knew the hearts of men, because the choice was to be made by him, not by others. They spoke with such confidence, because someone had to be appointed. They did not say, Choose, but make known to us the chosen one, the one you choose, they said, fully aware that everything was preordained by God. They then drew lots, for they did not think themselves worthy to make the choice of their own accord, and therefore they wanted some sign for their instruction. That was from St. John Chrysostom in the Acts of the Apostles, his commentary on the selection of Matthias to take the place of Judas in the College of the, of the Twelve. First of all, notice the emphasis on the resurrection, how important it was that the one chosen had to be able to witness to the resurrection, not just great miracles of the events before and after the resurrection, but the resurrection itself. We know from Scripture 
that if we do not believe in the resurrection, then our faith is in vain. And yet there are all sorts of very fancy theologians who cast doubt on the resurrection itself. One has to wonder if they're really Christian. And did you also notice that they had to take a man who lived in their own company? Well, that seems like common sense, right? But consider the other implications of that. They knew that the men they picked had to be in con the candidates had to be in continuity with the apostles themselves and also the whole history of the company of followers of Jesus in his earthly life. And that continuity was of vital importance because it shaped their great and innovative decision to take it upon themselves to choose someone. And when the body of apostles, that is, all the bishops in the world, gathered together, the decision that that body made was actually Christ who was making the decision. And in the end, the mechanics of the election were really, really quite humble, quite appropriate for men who, in those terrible times of the Lord's passion and death, had made very bad choices. In fact, if we consider that these men that are have gathered together to choose Matthias, these are all the bishops of the whole world gathered there. This is the 12 minus 1. There are only 11 of them, but they are all the bishops of the world. And that drives home the fact that the first collective decision of bishops was to abandon the Lord, and that one twelfth of all the bishops of the world sold Jesus for silver. So we must thank God for his continuing presence in the church and his constant guidance, as well as the good ministry of bishops who in humility are seeking with all their will, all their strength to do Christ's will in difficult times. And these are difficult times. And they have the burden of human weakness, just like everybody else. But they soldier on, trying to do his will. We must thank God for the good Will, the good ministry of bishops. Remember, even when we have a hard time understanding what they're doing or what they're saying or why they do or not do certain things, this is the way Christ himself willed our holy church to be. He wants men according to his will. He chooses those whom it pleases him to choose, not those who are worthy. No one is worthy of such a great burden, and yet this is the way Christ set up the church, with this hierarchy with bishops. And even though we see how in human terms it could be better, or certain people could be better, certain men could do maybe a better job here and there, we must thank God even when we have a hard time understanding what is going on for the ministry of our bishops. On this Pentecost Wednesday, it's appropriate that we have a prayer to the Holy Spirit. This is O Sancte Spiritus, O Holy Spirit, a prayer that I found in a collection of prayers published under the name the Rakolta. 
uh, in an edition of 1941. O Sancte Spiritus, qui solemni Pentecostes die repente per dispertitas linguas tamquam ignison apostolos descendens, intra cenaculum congregatos. O Holy Spirit, who on the solemn day of Pentecost did suddenly descend upon the apostles gathered in the upper room, in parted tongues as it were of fire, and didst so enlighten their minds, inflame their hearts, and strengthen their wills, that henceforth they went through the entire world and courageously and confidently proclaimed everywhere the teaching of Christ, and sealed it with the shedding of their blood, renew, we beseech thee, the wondrous outpouring of thy grace in our hearts also. How grievously our minds are afflicted with ignorance concerning the nature and dignity of those divine truths which form the object of faith, without which no man may hope for salvation. How far men go astray from a just estimation of earthly goods, which too often are put before the soul itself. How often our hearts do not beat with the love of the Creator as they ought, but rather with an ignoble lust for creatures. How often are we led by a false respect for human judgment, when we ought to profess openly the precepts of Jesus Christ, and to reduce them to action with a sincere heart, and with, if need be, of our worldly substance. What weakness we manifest in embracing and carrying with a serene and willing heart the crosses of this life, which alone can make the Christian a worthy follower of his divine Master. O Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds, cleanse our hearts, and give new strength to our wills, to such a degree at least that we may clearly recognize the value of our soul, and in a like manner despise the perishable goods of this world, that we may love God above all things, and, for love of Him, our neighbor as ourselves, that we may not only be free from fear in professing our faith publicly, but rather may glory in it. Finally, that we may accept not only prosperity, but also adversity, as from the hand of the Lord, with all confidence that He will turn all things into good for those who lovingly tend towards Him. Grant, we beseech Thee, that we, by constantly answering the sweet impulses of Thy grace and doing that which is good with a persevering heart, may deserve one day to receive the rich reward of glory everlasting. Amen. Thank you.